I've never owned a cat, all right? I mean, everything else, maybe, but I've never owned a cat. I would never stoop that low. That's disgusting. Well, we've got tough choices to make over the next year. It is going to be election season, and we're starting a new series about uh, God's will for your life and how to make decisions, like all kinds of decisions, including political decisions. But to get us started, some of you have probably heard of the game called Would You Rather? And uh, Mark Tatum, one of our pastors, loves this game. And so when we travel, uh, he often will ask us really weird questions uh, like, would you rather this or that? And so he posted a couple of these uh, or several of these last fall. And so I'm going to ask you, okay, first of all, would you rather have no elbows or no knees? Okay, who's, who's elbows? No elbows, hands, no knees, hands. Okay. He said on his post, 61% said no elbows. All right. Okay. Next, would you rather have fingers as long as toes or toes as long as fingers? Think about it. Think about it. Fingers as long as toes or toes as long as fingers. 61% said toes as long as fingers. I guess they thought you could have shoes that could cover it or something. I don't know. It's just... Both of them are disturbing. Um, and then finally, no teeth or no fingers. How many would say I'd rather not have teeth than no fingers, okay? How many no fingers instead of teeth? Okay, I think, I think the teeth won out on that actually. And his poll said the same thing. 81% said no teeth. That gives you a little bit of insight though into the mind of Mark Tatum and the way that he thinks. But a lot of us have daily decisions to make. Like when you're through here, if you're not a college student, you've got a tough decision to make as a family. Where are you going to go eat, right? Guys, your wife's probably going to say she doesn't care. And then you're going to make a suggestion. And then she's going to say, no, I don't want to go there. Um, that's the way it typically goes in, in our house. Uh, it's tough figuring out what present you're going to get your spouse. Uh, I got my wife a diamond necklace for our one year, two year anniversary, and she's never worn it once. Like not once did she ever put it on. I totally struck out on that present. Parents have a decision to make. Are you going to stick to your guns with the decision you made for your kids? Like with the discipline that you came up with, or are you going to give in to their constant whining and arguing, you know, and undermining of that consequence? You got a decision to make. You got a decision if you'll use the public restroom and wait in line, or if you're gonna drive all the way home or hold it until you get to the next city, right? And, and go when you arrive where you're going. If you're Brandon, unfortunately, every single day, that's a tough choice. You got him, he's gotta make that choice. Every day he's deciding whether or not to go to the bathroom in a public bathroom or drive all the way home to his house to go to the, just to go to the bathroom and then come back to work or whatever it is that he's doing. That's a tough tough choice. I made a tough choice this morning. I was trying to decide what to wear. And I thought I'm going to wear my Patrick Mahomes Jersey today. And then I heard a voice, like it was the voice of the Lord whisper in my ear, save it for the Super Bowl. So I was like, all right, yes, Lord. I, I claim that in Jesus name and, uh, I will save it for Super Bowl Sunday. Well, in this series, that's what we're talking about. How do we make choices? How do we make decisions. Like what about the job that you're going to have? Do I switch jobs? The city I'm going to live in, the college I'm going to go to, what am I going to major? What about when I'm graduating and I've got to find the one, how do I know the one? And if this is the person 
for me? And in this season, how do I vote? Who do I vote? What do I vote for? How do we make these decisions? So if you got your Bible, go to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to set this up for you as you're turning there, as you're opening our app, downloading our app, the City Church Lubbock. Now's a great time to do that. The verses are there. The points are there. Everything we're going to talk about is there. You can email it to yourself when you're done so you can take it with you and keep it. But in Acts chapter 15, here's what's happening. Some people have begun to teach this, that you must be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. Now, men, this was a big decision then, and it's a big decision for us now. This had lasting consequences, all right? I'm sure a lot of men were waiting to hear the Jerusalem Council's decision on whether or not you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. I mean, can you imagine if you wanted to give your life to Christ, it was like you get baptized and then you go get in line for circumcision. I mean, that would be rough. And so they were trying to decide what to do. And so they met in Jerusalem. A lot of the elders and leaders of the church came together, people like Paul and Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and many other elders in the church. They, they came together and different uh, cities sent people to Jerusalem to have this discussion. And here's what they were basically having to choose and decide. Is it Jesus plus something will bring me forgiveness and make me right with God, will save me? Or is it Jesus plus nothing? And you and I are faced with that decision as well. Are we going to believe that the cross was enough? Or are we going to believe that we've got to give our life to Christ plus do better and try harder and pray this many times and read this many times, be to church this many times and give this much money? Do I, do I, is it Jesus plus all these other things and me doing better and trying harder that will save me? And how will I ever know if I'm saved? Or is it Jesus plus nothing? What is it? And so that's what they're coming together to decide. If I could put it in the simplest of terms, is it Jesus plus nothing will save me? Or is it Jesus plus a lot of other things that will save me? It's an important question. Maybe the most important question and decision that's ever been reached by the church. What will save me and make me right with God? Is it Jesus plus nothing? So the leaders come together in Acts chapter 15, they get together, they're praying, they're discussing, they're talking about, they're remembering and probably reminding each other of the things that Jesus said. And, and here's what they decide. Acts chapter 15, right here in verse 11 says this, they got up, they determined this. We believe, watch this, this is huge. We believe that we are all saved the same way. So every one of us, every person on the face of the planet is saved in the same way. How? What's, what's this way? By the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Undeserved, unmerited means you can't earn it and you don't deserve it. And that's what grace is. It's receiving what you did not work for, what you did not attain on your own. And so they determine we're all saved the same way, the undeserved grace. So there's nothing I can do to deserve a right standing with God. There's nothing I can do. Let's put it this way. There's nothing I can do to save myself. I can't do enough things, do better, try harder in order to be right with God. That's not the way that we're saved. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says it like this, salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done. So there's nothing we can do. So here's what they determine. It's Jesus plus nothing. The cross was enough. When Jesus said it is finished, it was finished 
finished, your fine for your sin was paid in full. He took on all the wrath of God for your sin and my sin upon himself on the cross. Hebrews would say it like this. If you've been reading with us in, in, in Hebrews the past couple of weeks through our daily devotionals on our app, uh, Hebrews would say it like this. He died once and for all. Past, present, and future. Sin, past, present, and future. He died once and for all time. There's no more sacrifices, Hebrews would say, left to be had for sin. His sacrifice was good once and for all time. And it paid the fine for our sin. And Jesus' words when he died on the cross, it is finished, it's done, it's complete. And so here's what they determined. Jesus plus nothing will save you. And we're all saved the same way. There is no other way to be saved it's only Jesus, and it's Jesus, and it's great news. It's great news. Jesus plus nothing will save me from my sin, make me right with God, and I can know for sure that when I die, I'm going to heaven if I give my life to the Lord Jesus, because Jesus plus nothing is what saves me. And so here's what they determined. In Acts 15, verse 19, a few verses later, it says this. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for these Gentiles who, who are turning to God. This is one of the reasons they made this decision. They didn't want to make it difficult. In the words of Paul, Paul would say the cross is a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block for all of us because when we come to Jesus, we must admit that we have sinned. We've fallen short of his standard to have a relationship with him and to go to heaven when we die. And I, that means I, I need someone to save me. Like I can't do it on my own. I can't do better and try harder. So I'm in a bad place. I'm in a bad spot. Jesus would say it like this. I came for those who know they are sick and need a doctor. I didn't come for people who think they're righteous and they're really not. I came for people who know they are broken and messed up and sinful. I came for people who know they need a doctor. They know they need a healer, a rescuer. And so the Christian comes to the cross and bows down and says, I cannot do this. I cannot work my way to God. And so I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. It's a humbling thing. And so Paul said that the cross is a stumbling block. And Andy Stanley in his book, Deep and Wide, said basically, the cross is a stumbling block, and so we don't want to create any other stumbling block to people meeting Jesus and following Jesus. We want to make it easy for people to meet Jesus and follow Jesus. And that's one of the reasons they made this decision. We don't want to make it difficult. We don't want to make it difficult for people who aren't Hebrews, for people who aren't Jews. We want, we want to make it easy for Gentiles, and that's probably you, every one of us, that's every one, last one of us, probably that's you and me. We want to make it easy for them to come to faith in Christ. And so we don't want to put all these rules and regulations on top of giving your life to Jesus. No, we want to make it easy, they said, because the cross is stumbling block enough. And so they get together, they make this choice. This is kind of the reason why. And then they send out this letter to all the Gentile believers and all the Gentile churches all throughout the region. And here's, one, here's, what, here's what they said in verse 28. For it seemed good, watch this. Here's how they made the decision. Here was the basis of the decision. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. And they said, don't uh, worship idols, don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols, and, and don't, commit, uh, don't get involved in, in sexual morality. Those things will, will ruin your life. But they said, Jesus plus nothing 
is how we are all saved. And, and here's how they came to the conclusion together. Because they said, to, uh, it seemed good to us, but here's, here's what they said. Here's how we came to the decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It seemed good. That's how they made their decision. They made the decision that seemed good to the, and that's an abbreviation for the Holy Spirit. That's how they made the decision. They didn't make the decision that seemed good to me. And that's how most of us make decisions a lot of times. Well, I'm going to do whatever seems good to me. No, no, no. That's not how they made their decision. They made the decision that seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may be like, who's the Holy Spirit? And what does the Holy Spirit do? It's a great question. The Holy Spirit, quite simply, is God. The Bible teaches that God exists in three different persons. One God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that actually starts all the way in beginning in Genesis chapter one. God refers to himself in a plural form. He says, let us make man in our image. So one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We call it the Godhead or the doctrine of the Trinity. That there is one God, but he has eternally existed in three different persons. And the Holy Spirit is one of those persons. The Holy Spirit is God, the scripture teaches. And so the Holy Spirit is God and God places his spirit inside of us when you give your life to Jesus. So when you give your life to Jesus, when you believe Jesus plus nothing will make you right with God and you give your life to Jesus, God places his spirit inside of you. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you've given your life to Christ. Ephesians 1 teaches us that at that moment, you received God's spirit, the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And the scripture, the New Testament would teach us so that now you and I are the body of Christ and we are his temple. We are now the temple of the living God, the place where God's presence resides here on this earth. What an awesome thought that Christian, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that God's presence lives inside of you and dwells inside of you. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, God promised in the new covenant, God would place his spirit within us. And the new covenant is Jesus plus nothing. It's not do better and try harder. It's Jesus plus nothing makes you right with God, forgives you of your sin and gives you the Holy Spirit. And so when you receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit does several things. First of all, the Holy Spirit moves us to holiness. The Holy Spirit gives us a desire for holiness because it's the spirit of holiness, right? And so God places his spirit inside of us. And God said in the new covenant, his spirit would move us to follow him and to obey him. God said in the new covenant, through my Holy Spirit living inside of you, my laws will be on your heart. It will not be this external code that you have to follow and check off like a checklist in order to be right with me. No, no, no. I'm going to place my spirit within you and move you. And my laws are going to be written on your heart. I'm going to give you a desire for the things I desire. You're going to have a heart for the things I have a heart for. And so God's spirit gives us a, a desire, this newfound desire for holiness. It gives us the ability to turn from sin. It gives us the ability to do supernatural things for God that we could not do in and of ourselves. It gives us the power to be his witnesses. Jesus said in Acts 1, 8, you will receive my spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And so our power and ability to be his witnesses comes from 
the Holy Spirit. But there's something else the, the Holy Spirit does in us. And Jesus said it like this, the Holy Spirit's coming and the Holy Spirit will do this, will lead you and guide you into all truth and will remind you of what I said. Jesus said, I, I'm going away. The disciples are upset. He's like, no, 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 no. Listen, you got to understand if I go, there's one coming after me. And it's better if I go because the Holy Spirit's going to come. Who's going to be your comforter Who's going to be your counselor. And the Holy Spirit's going to dwell inside of you. And the Holy Spirit will speak to you. That's how God speaks to us today through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will speak to you and will remind you of all that I have said and will lead you and guide you into all truth. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Which begs the question, if the Holy Spirit, if God speaks to me through the Holy Spirit, how, how do I know when he's speaking and how do I recognize the voice of God, right? I mean, all of us want to know what's God's will for my life. I pray and I ask God for these things. How do I hear from God and know what he wants for me and know what he wants for my life? How do I recognize the voice of God? Well, Henry Blackaby in his study, Experiencing God, said this about the Holy Spirit. God speaks by the Holy Spirit, watch this, through the Bible, through prayer, through our circumstances, the situations that we come across in life, and through the church to do this, watch this, to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways. God, how do I, how do I get to know you? How, how, how do I know what you're like? His Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church to get to know God. God, how, how, how do I know your will for my life, your, your purposes for my life? How, how, do, how do I get to know those things? God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayer, circumstances of the church so that you can know his will for your life, his purpose for your life. That's how God speaks to us. And, and here's what's happened. Here, here, here's what will happen in your life. The more that you read the Bible, the more that you, that you pray, the more that you're with the church, the body of Christ, God's people, the more you will begin to hear God's voice and the better you will begin to recognize God's voice. So if you're here today and you're like, hey, I'm not too sure how to recognize God's voice and how to pick out his voice and what he wants for my life above like my voice and what other people want for me. I'm not too sure how to like pick out his voice and know what he wants. Well, read your Bible more. Spend some more time in prayer. We just got through the series talking about closet prayer and, and corporate prayer. Spend, spend more time in prayer. Spend more time with God's church, the, the body of Christ. And the more that you do that, the more you will begin to recognize the voice of God. It's just like any relationship, right? I mean, how many of you, listen, let's just, and I'm not going to pick on moms or grandmothers or anything like that, but, but how many of you have a mom that when they call you, they still tell you, Hey, it's your mother. My mom, when she calls me, every time she, I pick up the phone, she says, Clayton, it's your mother. I'm like, mom, I know it's you. I, I recognize your voice. I can, I can pick out your laugh in a, in a room of a thousand people. She thinks I'm hilarious. And so when I tell a joke, she laughs and I can hear her above the thousand other people that are always laughing at me. So, so it's easy to pick out her. I know her voice. Plus her name comes up on my caller ID, right? So I know it's her. 
But the better you get to know someone, the more that you can pick out their voice among all the other voices, the more that you can hear them laughing in a room full of people laughing, you can hear their laugh and know that person's in the room. You wouldn't even have to see them because you know that person that well. You've gotten to know their voice. The same thing is true with God. The more time you spend with God reading the scripture, the more time you spend in prayer, the more time you spend with the body of Christ, his church, the, the more that you begin to hear God's voice and the more that you're able to, to pick it out and, and, and to hear it. But until that time, and to help you recognize the voice of God, we've got some questions for you to act as a filter as a filter to know, is this really God speaking to me by the Holy Spirit? Does my choice or does this decision I'm looking at, does this seem good to the Holy Spirit? Or does it just seem good to me? How do I know if my choice, if this decision that I'm faced with, how do I know what seems good to the Holy Spirit? Five questions for you. Number one, is it good to the Holy Spirit? Number one, does God's word clearly and directly speak to this issue and, here's a key, and is the audience limited or universal? Okay, make sure you catch this, this is huge. Does God's word clearly and directly speak to this issue, this choice, this decision? Does it speak clearly and directly and is the audience limited or universal. You see, in the scripture, God's word speaks to several different, I'll call them domains, circles. It speaks to the individual. It speaks to the marriage relationship. It speaks to the church, the people of God. God's word speaks to the workplace and it even speaks to government. But if you get those things crossed, it can be very dangerous. And I'll show you here in just a little bit. But you've got to know the audience. Like, who's the audience? Does God's word speak directly and clearly to this issue? And who's the audience? Because that makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world. Things get real ugly real quick if you start taking things that apply to the church and you start saying the government's responsible for everything the church is supposed to do. Or it gets real nasty if you start saying that the government's role, which is to bring the sword, as we'll see here in just a second, it's to punish the wrongdoer. And you start saying, well, the God's word says that. So in the church, we should be doing that. You can see it gets, it can get dicey. It can get nasty real quick. If you start taking something that's written to a certain domain and trying to apply it to another one. So, so question number one, does it seem good to the Holy Spirit? Uh, does God's word speak clearly and directly to this issue? And is the audience limited like to a certain domain or is it universal for all of us, for all the domains that God has created? Number two, second question, is there a principle that speaks indirectly to this issue or to this decision or choice I have to make? Now, in case you're like, Man, I really, I, I could use this stuff. You haven't been writing it down. Pull up the app. All this stuff's right there for you. You can email it to yourself and, and take it with you when you go. But is there a, 
principle in God's word that speaks indirectly to this issue? Does there a principle that kind of gives us a glimpse into the heart of God that would allow us to say, okay, this seems good to the Holy Spirit because I can see God's heart in this situation and in this principle. And so it helps me apply it maybe to this choice or this decision. Third, what's the wise choice? The whole book of Proverbs is all about what a wise person does, how a wise person lives. And so a good question would be, what is a wise person? What would a wise person do in this situation or with this decision? So what's the wise choice? Fourth, what makes the most sense in line of eternity? Jesus said, don't, don't store up treasure here on earth, store up treasure in heaven. Jesus was saying you need to live for what matters most and what matters most in this life is what we do for eternity's sake. Paul would say it like this, don't, don't get so caught up on things that are seen, like the here and now, things that are temporary. Paul would say, live for things and fix your eyes on things and your thoughts on things that are unseen, the unseen eternal things of heaven. So, so what makes the most sense in light of eternity? Because I'm not built just for the here and now. No, 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 I'm a citizen of heaven. And so as a follower of Jesus, I should be asking and thinking in light of this decision, this choice, what makes the most sense in light of eternity? I want an eternal perspective on the decisions and choices I'm making. And then finally, last, number five, will this make it easier or harder for people to follow Jesus, right? I mean, in the spirit of Acts 15, that was one of the reasons they made the choice that they did. They didn't want to make it hard, remember, remember, for people to follow Jesus. They wanted to make it easy. So will this choice, will this decision make it easier or harder for people to follow Jesus? Now, let's get interesting. Let's get controversial for a second. What about as it applies to political and cultural issues of our day? What's God's will? How do we decide on what to vote for and who to vote for? What about issues like limited or large government? Does God's word speak to the size and the scope of government? Well, it does indirectly. Paul says in Romans 13, he gives a long description of what the government should do and what the government should provide and what the government should do for its people. And basically, here's what Paul says in Romans 13, that the role of government is to protect its people. It's to punish wrongdoers. It's to bring the sword in the case of those who break the law or those who would come against that country. It's to serve its people. And it's silent pretty much on anything else. So you might say, I think the government should do that, this or that, and that's fine. That's your opinion. But if God's word doesn't speak directly to it, then that's your opinion and that's okay. There, there may not be anything wrong with that, but that doesn't mean God's word says that's what the government should do, or we should attach God's name to what we think the government should do or not do. Because a lot like the way the church is supposed to look and what a church should do. There's a lot of silence in the New Testament on that. 
The same thing is true with government. We have indirect principles in the scripture that tell us the scope and size of government, but nothing specific, nothing universal that would apply to all contexts and all situations. What about the economy? Well, the scripture speaks indirectly to the economy. In Proverbs, it says that the borrower is slave to the lender. And so we can tell, okay, if that's the, the heart of God for me as a person and as a follower of Jesus, then it would make sense too, if that's the heart of God, for that to apply to a government, that the borrower would be slave to the lender, that we should, in other words, we should spend less than we make. We should be able to save because the borrower is slave to the lender. Paul said, if you don't work because of laziness, and so does Proverbs, if you don't work because of laziness, you shouldn't eat. In Acts, we see a limited audience of economy. When we see the church selling things that they have in order to provide for the needs of the poor, but, but that audience is limited. We can't take something the church did in Acts and then apply it to the workplace or apply it even to our government. We see the people of God, those who have plenty should be selling it and willing to give to those who are in need. And that should be our heart as a church, as a followers of Jesus. But we can't take that that's written for the church and, and is a description of the church and then say and equate that to, well, then that should be true in the workplace or that should be true with the government as well. It doesn't work like that. Basic reading comprehension says you've got to know the audience that this is speaking to. So what about borders, walls, immigration? The scripture does speak to it, but the audience is limited. The people of God are to love our neighbor and to care for the foreigner that's among us. But again, that audience is limited. It's silent on government's response and role in immigration because the assumption, I think, a lot like the church, is that the context and the conditions and the situation would dictate what a government would do in response to immigration. But there's no question when it comes to us as followers of Jesus, what our heart should be. We should be loving our neighbor and we should be loving and caring for the foreigner that is among us. There's no question about that. What about racism and equality? The scripture speaks directly to racism and equality and the audience is universal. In Genesis chapter one, the Bible says God created all people, male and female. He created them in the image of God. Psalm 139 teaches us that God creates every person in his mother's womb and knits them and fashions them and forms them together. So every person on the face of this planet has been created and made in the image of God. And so they have infinite value and worth in the eyes of God. And so as the people of God, every person, regardless of their race, their gender, or the way they identify should have infinite value and worth. And we should treat them as such that they have infinite value and worth in the eyes of God. Paul said in Galatians three, that in the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
slave or free, male or female, we are all one in Christ. And Paul would say, God shows no favoritism and neither should we. So the scripture speaks, yes, clearly and directly to racism and to equality and says there is no room for racism in a follower of Jesus. It is absolutely evil to look at someone because of their race or their gender and not treat them as being made in the image of God. What about when it comes to abortion? Yes, God's word clearly and directly speaks to abortion. In Psalm 139, again, we see that God is the one who knits together every life in their mother's womb. It's God. Yes, husbands, wives, we have a, a role to play. But Psalm 139 makes it clear that it is God who forms and fashions that life together in their mother's womb. In Exodus chapter 21, those who injured a woman says if a fight breaks out and two guys are fighting and they injure a woman who is pregnant, she has not yet given birth to the child, and they injure the woman who is pregnant, then whatever happens to the baby would happen to the person who injured the woman. And in Exodus 21, it would say this, life for a life, even with the unborn. That was the punishment. You kill a child in the womb, even on accident. And it was life for a life. And so we can see the, the heart of God here and the way he views the unborn, the preborn. That every child from the moment of conception, the Bible says, is a life in God's eyes. Has infinite value and worth. And Psalm 139 would say, God has planned every day of their life from the moment of conception. Now, if you're here and you have made that tough decision in your past, and I know there are many here that have. We have friends, my wife and I do, that have. You've made that tough decision. I want you to know that just like anyone else's sin, there is grace and mercy and forgiveness here, and you are welcome and wanted here. In the same way, I would want you to be gracious and forgiving and merciful towards me for all the sin and tough choices I've made in my life. It doesn't change the fact that it's sin. But there is grace, infinite grace and mercy and forgiveness for every last person, no matter what they have done. What about when it comes to gender? The Bible speaks clearly and directly to gender identity. And the audience is universal. In Genesis chapter one, God says, I made you male and female. Psalm 139, again, it is God who knits a life together in their mother's womb and determines their gender. 
And then in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus affirms this and quotes from Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two and says, don't you know, don't you remember when God said, I made you male and female? So the, the message of scripture is this, that God determines gender and we experience God's best when we fully embrace and pursue the gender that God has designed us to be. Now, if you are here, and you have struggled with your gender identity, then I want you to know that we want you to be here and to struggle through that issue here together with us because there is grace and mercy and forgiveness for every last one of us, regardless of the struggle, the sin. You are welcome and wanted here as you navigate that and as you seek God and his best for your life in that decision, in that choice. But we want you here and we want to help you and pray with you as you fully embrace and pursue the gender that God has designed you to be. What about marriage? Does God's word speak clearly and directly to marriage? Yes, it does. Again, in Genesis chapter one and two, the scripture says God made them both male and female and united them together in marriage. Jesus in Matthew 19, again, quotes from this passage in Genesis one and two, talking about marriage and says, God made you male and female. And so the message of scripture is this, that God creates male and female to be united in marriage together for life. And that's God's design and best for marriage. And so scripture clearly and directly and universally speaks to marriage and what marriage is and what marriage should be like. And I want you to know that if you have made the tough choice to get divorced, that there's grace and mercy and forgiveness for you. My family has been greatly affected by divorce. We have struggled through that for nearly 20 years. And if that's you and you've made that tough choice, then there is grace and mercy here for you and you are welcome and wanted. But I hope you can see why it's so important for us to make decisions and choices and to even vote based on what God's word says and what seems good to the Holy Spirit. And so some of you, you might be like here, you may want to meet with me afterwards and be like, okay, Clayton, okay, that's all great. Like, that's good. I heard you talk about this. So who are you going to vote for? I'm not telling. <laughs> and here's why. Here's why. Because many of these issues, half the ones we just talked about, are not clear and the audience is limited. Which means this, since we believe in what's called the priesthood of the believer, which means you have the Holy Spirit and so the Bible says we are all now priests of God in the new covenant. So we believe in what's called the priesthood of the believer here. You are free to make decisions and choices in your life as a follower of Jesus that seem good to the Holy Spirit. 
And so you are going to make choices and we are going to make choices and I'm going to make choices and we are going to make choices that don't match up and don't align perfectly. We are not ever going to achieve uniformity in what we believe and think about every little issue. Now, what you have heard us say in the summer when we did our series called Creed, and we'll do it again this summer, there are some major issues that we must agree on to be in fellowship together and to, and to pursue God together and to be on mission together. And, and we've talked about some of those, but there are a lot of minor issues when it comes to political issues and platforms and views. And for you, you need to pray and ask what seems good to the Holy Spirit and take each one of these issues and the candidates and their views on those issues and, and look and, and judge for yourself what seems good to the Holy Spirit. Not to me, not what seems good to a party or to a platform. What seems good to the Holy Spirit as I make this choice on who I'm going to vote for. But here's what I want you to know. If you didn't realize this, Republicans in the room, did you know that there are Democrats that attend here at our church? And Democrats, did you know that there are Republicans here that attend our church? Can you believe that? Poor people, did you know that there are privileged and wealthy people that attend here at this church? Privileged and wealthy people, did you know that there are very poor people that attend here at this church? If you're looking for a church where everyone agrees with everything you think and believe and has the exact same lifestyle that you do, this is the wrong place. It's the wrong place for you. And here's why. Because we can disagree politically. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to love unconditionally and still be united missionally. As a follower of Jesus, we can disagree on all the minor political issues and still and are still called to love each other unconditionally and be united missionally. And so if you're looking for a place to go to church where everyone agrees with everything you think, this is the wrong place because listen, our inability to do this is a sign that the gospel has not fully taken hold and root in our hearts. You see, the gospel, when it takes root in someone's heart, says like Paul, there is neither slave nor free, male or female, Jew or Greek, Republican or Democrat. And there is neither poor nor rich. We are all one in Christ. That's the message of the gospel. We are a family, even though we disagree politically, we're still called to love each other unconditionally and be united missionally. You see, while all of us may disagree on the role of government on minor issues, at least, we can all agree that as followers of Jesus and as, and as the church, we have a role to play in every single one of them. We are called, Jesus said, to be salt and light in this world and in our culture. And so we may disagree politically, but we are still called as the body of Christ and as the family of God to love each other unconditionally 
and to be united missionally. So I would invite you over this next year to use these questions to determine whether or not to post something to social media. Is what I'm about to post clearly and directly talked about in scripture and is the audience universal? Is this going to help people follow Jesus or is it going to be a stumbling block to people who don't know Jesus? Is this a wise choice to post what I'm about to post? Or should I be like James said, slow to post and quick to listen? Because you see, your candidate will win or lose based on how the vote goes this November. But I would submit to you that the church will win or lose based on our behavior between now and then. And whether or not we can love each other unconditionally and be united missionally. You see, Christianity has survived and even thrived under the worst of governments. I mean, when Jesus came, when Jesus entered the scene, he comes underneath and he comes onto the scene under the Roman government. I mean, this is one of the most brutal and idolatrous governments the world has ever known. Yet Jesus comes on the scene under the Roman government. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, my kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. And so his kingdom and Christianity not only survived, but it thrived under the Roman government. And it has thrived under governments like the Roman government that have even persecuted Christians. And you might say, how is that possible? How is it possible for Christianity to survive and thrive under an awful, terrible, brutal, idolatrous government? Here's why. First of all, Jesus's kingdom is not dependent on the kingdoms of this world. Jesus's kingdom is not dependent on the kingdom of the world. And secondly, Jesus's kingdom is not accomplished through the kingdoms of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. And so for his kingdom, for Christianity to survive and not only survive, but to thrive under the worst of governments means that Jesus's kingdom is not accomplished through the kingdoms of this world. And I can prove it to you real easy. When Jesus came, he didn't come to overthrow Caesar. In fact, people tried to make him king and Jesus walked away and said, that's not why I've come. So Jesus's kingdom, what great news is this? Is not accomplished through the kingdoms and governments of this world. When Jesus came, he didn't come to overthrow Caesar. No, no, no. Jesus came to preach and to make disciples. And then he told his disciples to go and make disciples. And Jesus's prayer in John 17 was this. Not for a certain platform, not for a certain party to win, not for a certain government to be in place. Jesus's prayer, interestingly enough, was make them one, Father, as we are one. It was a prayer of unity. Jesus's prayer for us as the body of Christ was unity. It's almost as if Jesus knew 
they're going to disagree politically. But my prayer is that they will still love each other unconditionally and be united missionally. They will be united to preach the gospel and to make disciples. So Jesus prayed that we would be one. So why, listen to this, why? Why would we as followers of an eternal king and kingdom allow ourselves to be divided by temporary political systems, by temporary leaders, by temporary platforms and temporary views? Why would we allow ourselves to be divided by lesser kings? Jesus's prayer was that we would be unified. And so watch this. Our mission is accomplished through our unity, not how we do politically. Our mission to preach the gospel and make disciples that, that make disciples in all nations, that's our, our mission. We accomplish that mission through our unity, not politically. And so we must be unified on the mission of Jesus. That is God's will for the body of Christ. That was his prayer for the church. Let them be one, Father, as you and I are one. Because their unity is crucial to God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And so now you may be here like, okay, that's great, like politically and all that kind of stuff. But what about like my job choice and the city I'm going to live in and the person I'm going to marry? What, what about some of those choices? You gave me some guidelines, but you didn't give me any answers. You didn't tell me whether or not I'm supposed to go to this college or this one or marry this person or that person. What do I do about all those choices? What's God's will for my life regarding all those other choices and decisions I have to make? Well, let me put it to you like this. In the words of the old theologian, Augustine, who was around in the fourth and fifth century, here's what he said. He said, love God and do as you please. That's pretty simple, right? Love God and then do as you please. Here's my version. Love Christ and choose. Love Christ and, and choose. In Isaiah 26, eight, it says, God, your name and your renown are the desires of our hearts. And, and we know God's name is Jesus now because Jesus is God. And so you could put it like this, your name, Jesus, and your fame, Jesus, are the desire of our hearts. That's, that's, that's my desire. And so if the desire of your heart as a follower of Jesus is to worship Jesus and serve Jesus and, and talk about Jesus and be with Jesus's people, his, his body. If, if that's your heart and you're loving and following Jesus with all your heart, then love Christ and choose. Choose what seems good to the Holy Spirit. And when there's not a clear and direct answer in the scripture to what you should do and what you should believe, then love Christ and choose. And oftentimes when you're making a decision that seems good to the Holy Spirit and you're loving Christ and, and choosing, there will be this supernatural peace that you will have about that decision. It, it doesn't mean it won't be hard. It doesn't mean the decision won't make things difficult for you. It doesn't mean there won't be sacrifice involved in that decision. But what it does mean is in the midst of that decision, 
If you're loving Christ and choosing, if you're doing something that seems good to the Holy Spirit, it does mean there will be this supernatural peace and calm about the decision. But here's what you got to know. Every choice, every choice is an opportunity to connect with Christ. Every choice, every decision you have to make, it's an opportunity to connect with Christ. You see, the point, the, the goal of every choice is Christ himself. The point of every decision is, is God himself. We want outcomes and answers. God wants connection and relationship. And so the goal of your choice is Christ himself. It's what you were created for. It's why you're here on this planet. That's God's will for your life is to know and follow Jesus. Your answer to your choice, your answer to your decision, isn't really an answer at all, it's a person. If you grew up in a Presbyterian church, you're familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Depending upon the church you grew up in, maybe you went through catechisms as a child or, or when you gave your life to Christ. But one of the most famous set of questions known as catechisms is the Westminster, Westminster Shorter Catechism. The most famous question of all is what's the chief end of man? What's, what's our purpose? What's God's will for my life? And here was the answer to that question. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's God's will for your life. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Would you stand with me as we pray? Our team's gonna come lead us in, in worship. And as you stand and as we pray, I wanna remind you if you've been doing the readings with us of a couple of verses we read over the past couple of weeks. One was in Hebrews 1, which says this, all things are made through Christ and sustained by Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it said that everything exists by God and for God. God's will for your life is Christ himself. God, we are here to hear from you and to worship you. And so Holy Spirit, in this moment, would, would you speak to us? God, would you guide us into all truth? God, would you give us a hatred for sin and, and a love for holiness, God? God, by your spirit, would you speak to us regarding the decisions we have to make, the, the choices we have to make? And, and we would see those now, God, as an opportunity to connect with Christ, knowing that the answer to our question, the answer to our choice is a person. And so Jesus, we lift up your name now. We, we worship the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.